Can everyone hear me? Did, did everyone hear what I said uh, initially? Okay, so I won't go through that again. Okay, great. So um, the British Council was founded uh, about 80 years ago uh, in the 1930s in Europe at a time uh, that uh, uh, experienced the rise of uh, xenophobia and intolerance. And the idea behind the British Council was really to establish an organization um, that would bring people together uh, and build bridges of understanding through the arts, through education, and through English. And 80 years on, that is still what the British Council does. We're present in about 100 countries around the world with 200 offices. Um, and here in the United States, uh, we uh, do a, a great deal of work to promote intercultural relations, um, particularly transatlantic relations between uh, the US and the UK, building on the strengths of both countries and on the synergies that exist between uh, the two countries. Um, I'd like to thank our moderator uh, and our panelists uh, tonight. Their bios uh, are on your uh, programs. Patrick, Dominic, Jody, Alexa, Sandra, and Vani. Um, we're so uh, pleased uh, that you have accepted our invitation and that you're here with us tonight. I'm particularly grateful to Jody Ginsburg and her team at Index on Censorship. Jody, I remember we um, met for the first time about a year and a half ago, and this is when the the, the idea for this event was was first uh, brewed in in our conversations, and I'm, I'm I'm really very very happy to see that it's it it has come to fruition. Um, I'm also, of course, very grateful to uh, the Pen World Voices Festival uh, for partnering with us. I think that uh, this is a, a great opportunity for us to, uh, to work together again. Uh, and of course, very grateful to the Great Campaign um, for their support uh, for this program. This is the final in a series of events that uh, the British Council has organized as part of Shakespeare Lives. Uh, a program that uh, has run uh, around the world to commemorate uh, Shakespeare's 400th uh, anniversary, the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Um, and uh, the program here in the United States has included uh, events at the New York Public Library uh, with people like uh, Helen Mirren and Fiona Shaw and Margaret Atwood, um, whose, whose book uh, is now being turned into a series uh, HBO. Tonight, it is Shakespeare's resonance with free speech and freedom of expression that brings us together, and I'm very pleased to welcome our guest artist, Vani Papildeo, to open this conversation with her work. Trinidadian British poet Vani Capildeo is the daughter of poet Devandranath Capildeo. Born in Port of Spain in Trinidad, she earned her PhD at Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes Scholar studying translation theory and Old Norse. She completed a research fellowship at Girton College in Cambridge University. In her precise layered poems and prose poems, Capaldeo engages themes of geographic intimate and linguistic distances and proximities. Her poetry collections include No Traveler Returns, Undraining Sea, Dark and Unaccustomed Words, Utter, and Measures of Expatriation, which won the 2016 
forward cries and which the Guardian hailed as a timely connection, collection about belonging. Capeldeo has served as a contributing editor for the Caribbean Review of Books and as an editorial assistant and a researcher at, uh, for, the for, uh, for the Oxford English Dictionary. She has lived in the United Kingdom since 1991. Capeldeo collaborated with writer and theater artist Jeremy Hardingham on a Shakespeare-engaged performance, um, a process she describes as part of an ongoing project relating text to movement in three in new ways. She will be appearing, uh, I should say, uh, for those who are interested, at Poets House this Thursday, May 4th, also with Pen World Voices Festival, and we're pleased to welcome here for the first time in New York City, Vani, please join me on the stage. and it's a great honor to be here. I'm going to begin with uh, some poems apparently about the sea. And I would like, this is from my first book, No Traveler Returns, the title of which is from Hamlet, of course, uh, Death, the Undiscovered Country. And uh, as the Bohemian Trinidadian, now resident in Canada, poet Christian Campbell says, uh, we tend to forget that the sea performs erasures. I know you're not coming here to censor me. that the sea performs erasures, uh, that one may mistake Caribbean archipelagic poetry as poetry of landscape, but when we look at the sand, we see washed away the canoes of the indigenous people, the boats of conquerors, uh, the boats of slave ships, and many, many more local struggles. So those are not pure places. Catch of the day right there outside. Declare the sea unfit to have had children. The beaches are the brink of toleration. The white staircase meant to lead to the beaches with a 90 degree landing. The white staircase is too swept up, investigating the pull on its ankle. There are the champagne ruffles. Where is the swell of a hand? to seem to invite dissent. No one bothers to lock the white staircase at night. Why lock against fools? Only fools wager a lifetime, which is the wager at an entrance which has been their dissent. Once joined to the mainland, at the tip of the island are islands. Map. It is a flattened boot cast off by all conquering muscle. Scraps of leather of metal strand and button and buckle in the process of being kicked off. A scrape, a scuff, a dehiscence in the nature of speeded up time. 
the plan that flattens each tooth. These are the islands that finish the island. Nowadays, the Coast Guard shoot smugglers hispanohablantes in pirogues. Though without that, the tug of the currents that frill out like dragons as flesh and as plentiful as shark, adept at detaching outer from inner from under, is dangerous enough. Serpent mouth. The small islands of a small island have their uses. Gaspari, Shakashakari, Carrera. Tourism, leper colony, maximum penalty prison. The next one is about a sex tourist, but she thinks she's very nice. It isn't sexy at all. Stop, warning, danger, Valentine. It was with memories of Germany that in every new homeland she built a red garden, red right through the calendar, a regime of roses, peonies, tulips, and also the flagstones, the summer umbrellas, the consolation of meats grilled next to the patio, the swanning uprightness of promenades with the neighbors. The sun is setting by the poolside, and it is out of season for red ponfetia, though the crimson anthuriums are present and fruit punch is pink with is it grenadine and guava, and a maraschino cherry on the straw she sips through with the sun flushing at her bare shoulders that are in their fifties and foreign, and not sure that they can take another holiday burn. The house prices in the newspaper are too high for paradise. Her husband's colleagues bought theirs in the 80s. It was better then. Shapes are repeated throughout nature, seldom their meanings. She does not use grape scissors because the racked grape stems resemble that seaweed with the berries that popped like vesicles and pleased her. The skin on her arms is peeling, the first sign of fungus that will work as open as surf, which from second to second maneuvers, flinging between red flags like lace shown off by a seller. The constant replanting of flags by the lifeguards, repositioning bathers. I'm going to get in now to a Shakespeare something. There's a friend of mine called Pretty Teenager, who's a Shakespeare scholar, and uh, she also runs a website called visualverse.org where you can get a prompt of an image and you have an honor system of one hour to write something in response and send it in. And because I know that Pretty does post-colonial and Shakespeare in her work, I set myself a little challenge and did a response to one of the images. Pobrecilio Tam, only I do not like the fashion of your garments. You will say they are Persian attire, but let them be changed. Shakespeare, King Lear, Act Three. Raise your game, said my friend, lucky in love since going online to learn moves that lead from geek to player. Go to the big Baldwin city, 
life's laid out like your sister's tea set. That time she spilled the milk and didn't cry for a real melting knife. Shammied my head and was going, radiant as a hermit's cave in Cappadocia. Fled him and my other dogs and wallpapered my sister's braced smile in carious photographs. Well, caramel, you can cross, pass, shoot for the stars, scrape sky for a living, but don't hang your washing from the window. The old man doesn't like it. And see that tree? It translates. Spring will bring again bread, stone, scorpion to hand. Always afternoon, if once you stand in his light. I prayed for liftoff and became a little horse shadowed by an always car. I prayed for inside and needed a shadow like a crown on my head. Lived off foods composed of substitutions. Lady of situations, I pray for liftoff. Tailoring my head and bust to rise above this city of uncadare nature. Pushkin types, fatalistic pedestrians who are at the start of my game, who are my true loves, if only their hearts were Gabriel, and not being Borges to death, staying off the drive-by streets, mummified in the seven-sealed orifices first named home. There's another poem which has quite an oblique relation to Shakespeare, I don't expect many of you will be familiar with The Winter's Tale. And what strikes me there, it's in the beginning where a wife has to go and hide because her husband imagines she's adulterous and naturally wants to kill her. And she tells him, you speak a language that I understand not. And then she's hidden and naturally is represented to him as a statue which comes to life. And the woman who's hidden her says, do not shun her. And when he touches her, he says, she is warm. And it strikes me how turning people into images, icons or representations of things we can't cope with, and that we refuse to find the living warm thing is so much behind what permits censorious regimes to stand. So although, although that was Hermione from The Winter's Tale, it informed how I read Cassandra, the ancient Greek prophetess and rape revival. I think it's a guy here named Hades. Cassandra, hashtag memory and trauma, living Ilion style, dedicated to Judy Raymond, newspaper editor in Trinidad. Terribly, terribly sorry, not. It's hard relating to this one. You know, the dead wench in another country gifted but an attention seeker. Your camera strikes from afar. Like snakes licking out Kay's ears, men of power seem caught up with her. More Twitter than other girls around her. Your camera strikes. Kay's screwing up her eyes in a boat, speaking for the sisterhood. But from that kind of family, why listen? She's privilege, complication, must be spoilt. Kay's voice flares victim to her high explosive hair, her thoughts dismissible, cuntly if you're a man, peripheral. Take 60 seconds to reread each of the lines above. That took 10 minutes. 
half as long as my death by stoning. Athena, grey-eyed justicer, that brought me back as if each stone broken for their roads and the rare oaths mined for their devices vocalized my far-flung blood. But I have questions for you, lawgiver, spoiler. Also, plans to find which women you move in these greater days of privilege and complication. Holding on to you was the safe zone, but the hero entered, held, and raped me in your precincts, Justicer. Why did you let him do it? Why did you wait to strike him down? Was it in a way I do not understand? Due process? Does the burden of proof still fall on me in modern courts? As people encouraged by helpful foreigners to cross a minefield may smile, stretched, blinded, or their legs blown off, so each of my memories, a living and willing witness, gets up to walk to you to tell my story, but doesn't make it as camera strikes from afar. If you want it to add up, why give me the gift of prophecy? I split, spill truth like marrow from bones, gleaming on stone-strewn ground. I'm going to read just one more thing. As threatened, it's a prose poem. And actually, it was written for an American magazine, Gangway, an online magazine, which was doing a special issue on expatriation. And I had to say, I hadn't really thought of expatriation. I just thought sometimes things were a bit difficult and sometimes they weren't. But this made me sit down and think quite hard. This is from section three, and I'm not reading the whole thing. Going nowhere, getting somewhere. How was it that till questioned, till displaced in the attempt to answer, I had scarcely thought of myself as having a country, or indeed as having left a country? The answer lies peripherally in looming, in hinterland, primarily in the tongueless, palpitating interiority. Trinidad was, Trinidad is. In the same way, some confident speakers do not think of themselves as having an accent, they will say so. I don't have an accent. You have an accent. In those accentless voices, compass points spin, ochre and ultramarine flagella fling themselves identifiably towards this or that or the other region. It is a motel version of that luxury, solidity, non-reflectivity that is the assumption of patria. So different is the expat from the refugee who has her country on her back, or the migrant who has countries at his back. What would I have called home before I began creating home? Before I had to learn to ravel up longitude, latitude, population, oil rigs, mobile phone masts, fireflies, legality of fireworks, likely use of firearms, density and disappearance of forests, scarlet iris, other stripes of scarlet, into a by-listeners unvisited, communicable, substantial image of Trinidad. 
language is my home. It is alive other than in speech. It is beyond a thing to be carried with me. It is ineluctable, variegated and muscular. A flicker and drag emanates from the idea of it. Language seems capable of girding the oceanic earth like the world serpent of Norse legend. It is as if language places a shaping pressure upon our territories of habitation and voyage, thrashing, independent, threatening to rive our known world apart. You thank Vani Capoletto again for her performance, her words, uh, and works that provide a point of departure for us to kind of dive in on Shakespeare, gender, power, and free speech. Uh, so this evening's panel, uh, much as uh, Emmanuel said, will explore the topic of power and free expression, the role of Shakespeare in, in a modern sense, and the role of theater and the arts more generally as vehicles for protest and dissent, vehicles for freedom of expression. And what is freedom of expression now in the arts and in the broader society? In Shakespeare's time, we all know that plays and theater held up a mirror to the society. Shakespeare challenged the gender norms and the taboos of his time. Artists and the arts play that same role today, here and around the globe. And our broader theme is about the importance of that free speech and free expression in an era, I believe, when free speech is under siege. We certainly are witnessing a new political era in the United States that is pro-nationalism, anti-globalism, pro-border, America first, not people or humans first, not human rights and freedom first. So there's maybe a greater need now more than ever uh, for artistic voices, spirit of activism, and speaking truth to power. So joining us this evening, uh, theater maker and director and author, Dominic Drongold. Co-founder of GW Digital Humanities Institute at George Washington University in DC, Alexa Alice Dubin. <laughs> Vice President of Programs for the International Center for Journalism, Patrick Butler. And Executive Director on, on, uh, of Index on Censorship, Jody Ginsburg, a partner in this event. So I want to open with some reflections by each panelist on tonight's theme. Dominic? <laughs> 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 you knew 
very, very careful to speak clearly into this microphone, otherwise someone's going to walk <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I think it's uh, very important to remember a number of things. Uh, it's such a huge topic, it's hard to distill it into a few words. It's very important to remember when Shakespeare wrote, the conditions that he wrote under. Um, Queen Elizabeth, uh, who was ruler for most of the first half of his writing career, uh, there were six attempts to revolt against her or to assassinate her or to seize control of the British throne. Her measures against that were to create the first sort of surveillance state um, and almost the first police state. Uh, amateurish, clumsy, an early prototype of what we now know and we now observe with horror all over the world, but it was, it was, that, uh, it was that sort of state in its early nascent form. She was followed by a king from elsewhere who was brought in and sort of given to the English population who was a brilliant man but, but wild, paranoid, permanently concerned about the different power bases within the British kingdom. Uh, and, you know, that was substantiated, his nervousness and his paranoia, by an attempt against the governing structure that was, uh, if it had been successful, would have been, you know, the greatest act of terrorism in the history of the world, still, which was what we now remember as the gunpowder plot, where, you know, enough gunpowder was put underneath the Houses of Parliament to take out the entirety of the ruling class and the ruling structure. Uh, so again, his reaction to that was one of suppression, of creating an atmosphere of fear, of bullying everybody, including artists, into submission. That was the environment within which Shakespeare worked. That was uh, the world that he was addressing when he wrote his plays. Uh, and amazingly and brilliantly, and it, you know, you could go on all night about why he's a great artist and why what he did was extraordinary. But he not only went against those conditions, he went against them incredibly boldly. He wrote the Scottish play, the Scottish play which is about a paranoid, psychotic Scottish king when he had a paranoid, psychotic <laughs> Scottish king there. He didn't hide, he didn't avoid the subject, he didn't run away from it. He wrote King Lear about a, an autocrat and uh, you know how uh, an autocrat dealt irresponsibly with his own kingdom. But uh, you know, he managed to equivocate, which is the great word from the Scottish play. Uh, and he managed to compensate within the Scottish play a portrait of a violent, psychotic Scottish king with, you know, one of the greatest stained acts of, uh, excuse my language because we're women, um, of sucking up to authority uh, that you've ever read when he gives a sort of long section of dull prose in praise of the succession through to James himself. Uh, so he equivocates very cleverly and he plays with authority very cleverly. And that for me is the reason why his plays have survived in appallingly difficult places, why they survived so long in uh, the old Soviet Union and the old Eastern Europe when there was an enormous amount of repression of artists and sitting on top of artists' freedom and artists' ambitions. But they couldn't ban Shakespeare and they've never been able to ban Shakespeare because he played this very clever game. The only other thing I'll say quickly is he, he not only didn't hide from taking on the subject full on and passionately, uh, he also wrote for everyone. And I think that the danger with 
censorship and the depression of various is that we get frightened and we shrink and we get smaller and we get more careful and we get more frightened. So we know that if we talk in this voice to one or two people or the people that read this newspaper or the people that live in this small niche, we'll be okay. That wasn't Shakespeare's way. Shakespeare wrote for everybody. He wrote for a big popular audience uh, and he took on these subjects full throttle in front of everyone. And I think that's you know, really important when we address how we deal with any sort of form of censorship various is being clever, being crafty, equivocated, whatever, but writing, but being bold, A, and being big and popular, B. Wow, that's hard to follow. Um, <laughs> I think what I would say very briefly is what, what fascinates me always uh, in, in these conversations is the tension I always feel between the arts, particularly, uh, say, somewhere like the UK, which is often talking about lack of funding, lack of interest in, in the arts in general, and the power that art, the arts possess to really challenge the powerful and the corrupt. At their best, they're really... Uh, art has immense power in all of its forms, and I think what's fascinating when you look at the way in which Shakespeare has evolved and been used in many countries over many centuries is that power. It's not the sort of weak link in the chain, as I think people often feel sometimes mm -hmm. that it is. You know, it's something that's the nice to have. It's the icing on the cake. You know, arts is the thing that comes last. You don't, you know, really, if we, if we're going to cut something, let's cut the arts because, you know, that's the kind of fancy stuff. Actually, it's immensely powerful and impactful. And I think um, some of the experiences of, of those countries that Dominic visited, for example, was the Globe Tour that I know we're going to talk about, demonstrate just how powerful it is. And that's true not only of countries where they have authoritarian regimes, but true also of places like the United States. And I think it's really exciting that we have an opportunity to talk about this this evening. So, um, I teach, I teach Shakespeare among other topics um, in Washington, D.C., three blocks from the White House. It's an immense privilege, but also in a difficult time like this. So it's really interesting. Um, I feel like art is really powerful. That is perhaps why Hamlet has to make this point about the poison of theater. You know, it's just false fire, but of course we all know that it's not false fire, and that's exactly why Stalin and Mao Zedong and all of these dictators, they have to contain art because it is too powerful. It has to be censored, it has to be taught in a specific way and framed and contained, but you can never contain it. And that's why art, art makes us human, um, but at the same time it challenges, it makes us uncomfortable. Shakespeare has plays like Merchant of Venice and Taming of the Shrew that really make you stay on the edge of your seat. Um, finished teaching in fact these plays and and um, several of my students actually raised this objection um, she said as a Jewish woman I really wonder why we are reading a play like Taming of the Shrew in the 21st century shouldn't we be reading something that is more enlightening that is more empowering and I think it's a double-edged sword because it works like Taming of the Shrew 
it compels you to confront difficult questions. And those questions are difficult because unfortunately we still live in a time where discussion is needed about those questions. And so you can of course sweep it under the carpet, but the questions will not disappear. Um, we need artworks like Taming of the Shrew and Merchant of Venice to be there to kind of talk to us in our face. Um, I think that's the power of Shakespeare. That's why Shakespeare is necessary in education, in arts and everything. Um, works, artworks like Shakespeare, they put the airy nothing of ideas into some kind of a local habitation. It's a, it's a felt presence in a community. You really feel it. Um, sometimes it's uncomfortable because, uncomfortable because it challenges various borders. Um, for some people it's comfort zone, for others it's really not comfortable. Um, and I will end by saying that art teaches us at least there are two different types of knowledge, right? There are so many ways to know things, to know this world. And sometimes people assume canonical art like Shakespeare, that kind of knowledge is not political. It's aesthetics, it's art, right? It's art for art's sake. But knowledge about the Soviet Union, about China, about Syria, that is political knowledge. But perhaps that is the problem, why people assume that knowledge about the arts about Shakespeare is necessarily apolitical and therefore um, safe. Perhaps, I mean, that's one reason why, uh, that's, that's what helped Shakespeare kind of evade the censors, kind of fly under the radar, because the censors invariably, they all think, oh, it's Shakespeare, fine. Um, and then it becomes, Shakespeare becomes a platform for people to make all kinds of expressions that would otherwise have not been possible. I think um, I would urge us to think about these assumptions about different kinds of knowledge. Some knowledge somehow is um, inherently political, while other kinds of knowledge is not. Great food for thought there, Alexa. And, and finally, Patrick, just some reflections on the theme. Thank you. Um, I think Shakespeare's a really interesting jumping off point to talk about journalism because Shakespeare lived during a time when the way that people, especially in England, received information or news, let's say, was really changing um, from in almost entirely by word of mouth or by letters, what news on the Rialto, let's say, to um, the first newspaper, which actually appeared in England uh, shortly after uh, Shakespeare's death. So uh, we're celebrating the 400th anniversary of his death now, and in a few years we could celebrate the 400th anniversary of the first newspaper in England. And then shortly after that, we saw the first government shutdown of a newspaper in England, no surprise. And shortly after that, the first jailing of a publisher in England. Um, and uh, so really setting the, setting the standard for, for what we're seeing today. Um, 400 years later, we're actually talking about whether newspapers can survive, whether, whether we will have newspapers in 50 years. We'll certainly have sources of news, but the actual printed newspaper that, that, that appeared in England so shortly after Shakespeare's death, we may not have that in 50 years. Um, we keep inventing new ways of conveying information to the public, uh, and governments keep finding new ways to shut down those channels of communication with the public. So um, obviously uh, we're gonna talk a lot tonight. Several of us have already presaged this a little by you know, talking about the atmosphere we're facing here in the United States, both towards the arts and towards journalism, towards all kinds of free expression. 
um, my organization works all over the world, not so much in the United States, but all over the world helping journalists do, do a better job of conveying information to their audiences. And of course our big fear that I'm sure we'll get a li little bit into here is that uh, you know, the, 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 the tone that's being set by our president about uh, journalism, media, uh, is, is not gone unnoticed in countries around the world. Um, and we're seeing obviously from Russia to Turkey to Venezuela, uh, all over the world, we're seeing uh, stepped up efforts to, uh, to, to restrict freedom of, of information and freedom of expression. And we're also seeing uh, really a, a backsliding um, in most of the indices of, of free expression or freedom of the press, let's say, such as that recently put out by Reporters Without Borders, uh, they found that two-thirds of the countries in the world are going the wrong way in terms of freedom of the press. So, um, and I think the, the other thing is, is that um, we journalists and artists uh, share a lot. In we have, we're obviously, we're conveying information in different ways, but I think that we're under threat in similar ways. And so, uh, banding together is, is something that I think is really important to protect our right. Well, we're going to start with, with uh, each panelist, start with Shakespeare, and then move to a wider discussion uh, about the arts, journalism, and the role of, of those things in free speech and society today. So I'm going to start again with Dominic. You've um, toured Hamlet in 197 countries uh, around the world. So let's, let's talk about what were the most challenging places to perform Hamlet and what challenges you encountered. Uh, well, there was a tremendous number and, and, and all different and all distinct. Um, we were very, very keen that we went everywhere and that everywhere meant everywhere. And this, you know, inevitably means frictions and uh, conflict the moment you come up with the idea because people say, well, how can you go there and why are you going there and why are you going there? But another form of censorship is these days is a censorship that you get of uh, both from the left and from the right in the UK of saying, why are you doing this? Why are you going to these countries? No one should go to these countries. No one should have anything to do with these countries, whether it's you know, the left attacking you for going to Israel or it's the right attacking you for going to North Korea or to Zimbabwe. There are all these filters you have to pass through and it was very much our determination that everywhere is everywhere and that it's not for us to judge, it's just for us to defend Hamlet and to take Hamlet to these places. Um, there were difficulties. North Korea was the biggest challenge of all. Um, we didn't finally make it. I mean, we pushed and we pushed and we pushed. We got in, then we failed to get in because there was a big scene at the United Nations and uh, they came back and said, you can't come. So then we made further sort of uh, backdoor efforts and someone came in, a very lovely man who we only learned two weeks ago has since defected. Uh, he's a delightful man, sat in the office, talked, we talked about it, we, we begged uh, that we could come and eventually we got the message through that yes, we could come, but we could only come if the performance was restricted solely to music, dance and acrobatics. <laughs> <laughs> and that nothing else was allowed. And we went, there's not an awful lot left if it's <laughs> just the music, the dance and the acrobatics. What's interesting about that is, I think, the word you know, and the power of the word and the danger of the word and the fear that the word creates is that there's no disrespect to music or to dance or to acrobatics, which are all wonderful and which can be radical and subversive in their own way. But the word still challenges people. Um, there were many countries, there were many, there were six, seven countries we couldn't get into because they were just too dangerous. So what we did in those situations was we went to 
play to the people of that country by playing in refugee camps close by. So we obviously couldn't get into Syria, so we went to, it wasn't a refugee camp, it's more of a city in the north of Jordan called Satari and played there. We played in Cameroon to refugees from CAR, in Djibouti to refugees from Yemen. Uh, and so that was the only way we could, we could conquer that problem. In Saudi we were going, but we tried our best to sort of adapt to what our hosts wanted us to do. It's a very you know, delicate and difficult thing because you want to be, as a guest in someone's home, you want to be respectful of their sensibility. And so if they're terribly offended by female flesh when Ophelia comes on at the end, you try and respect that to a certain degree. But we got to a moment with Saudi where they said no women on stage and that it would have to be an all-male performance. And we said, no, we're not coming then. And we sort of drew a line in the sand on that. And then eventually we managed to sort of find a way in going into a modern university, which is co-ed. And within the university compound, women have much greater freedoms than they have anywhere else in Saudi. So we were constantly negotiating positions like that. Unusual. What, what was the most unusual, surprising change you were asked to make? And were there any contentious subjects, whether it's sex, politics, or religion? No, really it was about female dress and female exposure and the amount of flesh on around. But apart from that, we were pretty cheerfully, warmly, good-heartedly firm that the show was the show and we were going to do the show. And, uh, and they'd have to... Uh, you know, that th that was what they were going to get. And by and large, because of what Alexa said about, you know, people go, oh, Shakespeare, you know, you can get away with a tremendous amount <laughs> just on the back of that. And it's only once you're in and once you are in certain places and you realize the strength of having the simple visceral visual strength of having a king um, on at a height in the very first scene and then having a young man in the same scenario who is seething with rage and bubbling over with fury. And we see that in London or you see it in New York and you just think, oh, we found it. Uh, you know, when, when are we gonna get to the good bits? And in a lot of these countries that we went to, you saw that, you saw that simple visual opposition and people went, ah, I, this is about something. This is about this man being angry with that man and it's about this man's rage. And ah, this man who's in full of rage, this is our, our ship who's carrying us through the evening. And this is immediately interesting. In a really quick, uh, visceral way that was just a delight to see. Let me go to Alexa um, and then more on Shakespeare. What plays tend to be the most contentious of Shakespeare's form globally? time and there's no one single play that is contentious in all locations globally. I think that's kind of what's interesting about, about global Shakespeare. One of the projects that I've invested my time in is called MIP Global Shakespeare, um, globalshakespeare.org. Um, it's a collection of videos that were collected from all over the world of performances of Shakespeare and we add English subtitles and we, we vet. So from, from based on my limited collection, uh, experience collecting all these uh, works, about 300, it's, it's, a, it's a very small sample of the actual performances going on. I can say among them, surprisingly, I think Hamlet, uh, Stalin 
notoriously doesn't like it because it's too close to home. Mm -hmm. um, Othello, who, who gets to play Othello? Who should play Othello? Should Othello played by a black actor? Is that very pretentious? In Lawrence Olivier's time, for example, mid-20th century, um, earlier Ian Aldridge, these uh, several American black actors, they, they launched their career playing Othello, interestingly, uh, in London, in fact, and then they are not able to pull it off in, in New York, and then they pull it back. So that's an example of how that play being read, I think, in 20th, 21st century uh, racial vocabulary uh, obtains a new life that obviously cannot be foreseen by Shakespeare. Um, much Ado About Nothing as well. Um, you, you would usually think a comedy is apolitical, it's absolutely safe. And in fact, that was the case in China during a time when China was um, fostering close ties to the Soviet Union. So there was a Soviet Chinese co-production of Much Ado, which enjoyed a very long life before, during, and after the Cultural Revolution, when many artworks were banned. But this one, it's so safe. Um, and not contentious, and yet, of course, the, 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 the female Soviet director and the Chinese director, they're trying to work things in um, by, by, by saying, by, by, by making statements without being too contentious. Um, Macbeth, in Thailand, there's this film called Shakespeare Must Die, and it's really interesting, I highly recommend it if you're interested, but um, in Kanjanarvanti and um, the director insists during interviews that he's not making any political statement. If you see any parallels, obviously that's due to your experiences. He especially says this. He says that when, when Cambodians see the movie, they will think it's, it is all about concern, exactly what, like, uh, what Dominic was saying earlier. When Libyans watch it, they will think it's all about Gaddafi. And of course, the film came out during a time um, during, during Thai, Thai political upheavals. So um, the film was banned, of course. And in fact, it's not circulated widely internationally. That's one example of how um, an otherwise innocent play about an obscure bit of Scottish history can insert itself into modern politics. I'm going to have you talk a little bit more along these lines. Historically, what do you think the role is the arts have played uh, in propelling society forward in her direction? I'm not sure if arts always propel society forward, but it always opens up wounds. It always opens up discussion. Um, it revisits trauma. Um, it allows people to have a vocabulary to talk about difficult things. Um, there are things in life that are perhaps most accurately expressed through metaphor. And sometimes what people don't understand is some metaphors are actually for real. They are not just they're not just metaphors, but there are no other ways to express those kinds of things. So I think in the post-Holocaust world, uh, especially immediately after uh, such atrocities, interestingly, um, a play like The Merchant of Venice has opened up many, many interesting discussions. And in fact, they staged um, the merchant um, in the ghetto as well as in the former concentration camp. So that kind of site-specific work is communal, it's healing, um, and it is kind of bringing us to particular parts of history, perhaps not all the way back to Shakespeare's history, 
access to a, a bit of history that's close to us. Um, whether or not that kind of artwork can propel the society forward, I think might be open to discussion, but I think definitely doing very important um, social work. Right. How did Shakespeare challenge your mind to see things that were obscuring you? Um, well, gender norms, norms about gender, gender identities as well as gender roles, in place at Twelfth Night, as you like it, all of these issues are there. Um, it's basically basically a giant lab. I like to think of it as a lab where people do thought experiments and that's where the challenges come. For us, there's that historical as well as cultural gap, that, that, that vacuum between us and Shakespeare, which makes it um, difficult to assess the nature of these challenges. Taming of the Shrew, for example, um, the debate still rages on. What, what is the meaning of Kate's submission speech at the very end? Has she really been tamed, or is that tongue-in-cheek, um, kind of exaggerating it, and actually making, um, kind of turning the table on her husband and tamer, Petruchio? I think Shakespeare challenges norms through ambiguous acts like this. It's never black and white, and that's why I find art so enriching, because there's always that gray area, and art is most alive in a gray area. The act of performance itself was challenging and was propelling things forward. Mm -hmm. And the reason was, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if you know the globe, but it was unifying a large amount of society and pulling them all into the <coughs> same energy and the same thought and the metaphors that you're talking of mm -hmm. at the same time. And I think the degree of radicalism in that was extraordinary that you had a thousand people standing who were paying not very much, more people sitting who were paying a little bit more, people up there who were sitting who were paying a lot more, and it was radically unified. It wasn't, uh, uh, there's a miss uh, and daftness about, oh, it was the people down here would get a, this sort of joke and the people up there would get that sort of joke. Total rubbish. They all got all the jokes at the same time all together. <laughs> and I think that's what was quite so radical about it and quite so extraordinary about it. And in this age we're in where we're all being resolutely driven into smaller and smaller self-reflecting <laughs> niches where you know we just look at ourselves and our close friends who share all the same opinions and that's how we're addressed and that's how we're manipulated i think that whole idea of saying no no, no this is for everybody, everybody. i mean uh, of course there are sort of cavils about the degree of everybody that everyone was at that moment although it was a lot better than say in ancient greece which attempted to do it a similar thing but it's that uh, massive, generous inclusion, which was quite so radical about it. And maybe for all of you, what, what kinds of messages does Shakespeare's work send about free speech and culture, and especially messages that are uncomfortable? <laughs> well, I don't know about the gender part, maybe. Um, <laughs> well, I think, uh, I, I think Shakespeare does send messages about uh, because so many of his characters are are speaking freely and and as a couple of our panelists have said, 
you know, there are subtle metaphorical sometimes ways that they're subverting authority, um, the kinds of things that maybe they could not do uh, in real life out in the streets, uh, but they're able, in, in the, the plays, uh, Shakespeare is able to show, I, I think maybe uh, certainly some of the histories, for example, that Shakespeare is able to show people um, in subtle ways uh, subverting authority. And um, so I think the message about free, you know, the freedom of speech, even though our understanding of freedom of speech is obviously very different from what it was then, but I do think that there, th that that message came through. How, I think uh, probably Dominic would be the best to say how people perceived that and whether they, you know, how they took that, that and, and, and uh, absorbed it and, and whether it, it ever translated into any sort of action. But um, I think, yeah, I think uh, Shakespeare was very important in, in showing people uh, speaking freely and, and saying things that perhaps they couldn't say on the street. I think there's a, uh, also there was an, there's an absolute sort of general democracy within Shakespeare's work, mm -hmm. which is formal, but which is hardwired into the center of him, which is that everyone is important. And this is why it's a joy to play it, it's a joy to act it, it's a joy to be in it, is that if you've got a tiny part, you come on. And you suddenly find within your tiny part, within your messenger, with your whatever, a sort of richness and a complexity and a life that no other writer's ever been close to, is that he was a great sort of quick draftsman and he could just write verse that suddenly made everyone come alive. And you suddenly realize that that is a principle that's at the heart of the work, which is that everyone matters and everyone's important. And in the same way as it spoke generously to a large group of people and made them all feel like they were being addressed, it made them feel that everyone on stage mattered, whoever they were. And I think that was radical in its own way and that was intensely democratic about it. C can I ask a, a follow-up question for, for both the Shakespeare experts? I, um, I'm really interested in what Dominic said about uh, you know speaking to every level of society and every level of society being there in the globe where today we have an image of Shakespeare as being for the elite. That, um, that I, I know that, and certainly your tour pushed against that, um, obviously, but um, you know, do, and I, I know there are many efforts to, to get Shakespeare performed in many different types of communities, but when I go to see a Shakespeare play, it generally is a certain you know, social class that's there. Did, what did we lose there? Why did that happen, or, or am I wrong? No, you're right, we lost everything. <laughs> the essence of the the essence of the globe is is one very simple thing. We're not subsidised. We're not at all subsidised by the government. We get no extra money. We operate completely out of the box office, and the heart of the whole operation is that there are six hundred people at every performance who stand, and who only pay five pounds, uh, and that's the thing that we've fought to preserve for twenty years. But they're all there for a fiver, and they see astonishing acting. Uh, and wonderful productions and wonderful music and wonderful great things all for a fiver. And the energy and the excitement they bring is what the globe lives on. Uh, it doesn't live on the response of the people who sit. It's them. And it's um, an intelligence, really. And it's a rawness of intelligence that comes from the brightness of mind they bring that really lights up the whole house. Did you Dominic? Did you say that? Am I right in the UK that does not rely on government subsidies? 
in fact, uh, it's right because that, that's quite something to say compared to rural Shakespeare Company, for example, and all over Europe where government subsidy of the arts is the norm. Um, class certainly is an issue when we talk about race, gender, we can't neglect class and religion. It's always a great divider, but also a unifier in Shakespeare's plays. We often see that. Um, uh, in Twelfth Night, we have Viola, this poor young woman who was shipwrecked on a foreign shore. And what does she do? She dresses up, of course, in her twin brother's clothes very conveniently. Shakespeare had a lot of twin actors, of course, and twins were a sight to, to behold because they're exotic. So that's one reason why we have so many twins and a shaken identity. But here, particularly, I think the message that a play like this that is sending is that be bold, go out, experiment, even if it is with certain sense of melancholy, from my view. Um, in, in Viola's role, she's a little bit melancholic, but different from other female-to-male um, uh, -male cross-dressers in Shakespeare who enjoys and enjoy life in the forest. Th there's always this melancholy <laughs> there. She's a bit reluctant, yet she has no choice. Um, but at the same time, she experiences all sorts of freedoms, right? I think the most precious freedom is freedom to be yourself. And that's very difficult to obtain. Um, I'm not trying to moralize literature or Shakespeare. I don't see Shakespeare or literature as having any moral authority. We're not reading the Bible. Um, even if people like to think of it that way, um, it's canonical, it must provide us some guidance. If anything at all, I think the guidance is that a work like Twelfth Night, it shows us the possibility. There's so many paths through the beach. The, the ocean may wash away, like Vani said, your footprints. But you will find yourself in it, and if, if you're bold enough and brave enough to kind of walk long enough through the storm. And I'm always moved by Shakespeare's plays that, that, that are planned by the storm and the wind or tempest. And out of that is new life. I think it's about, I mean, very plainly, <coughs> to answer your question, Patrick, I think a lot of this is about cost accessibility and choice, right? You know, 400 years ago, there was no radio, there was no television. It's much easier now to be entertained by switching the box on that's in, in front of you than it is to make the, the more, the larger commitment, even if it only costs you five pounds, to go into a big city, pay money to go and see something else, and, and therefore the incentive to do it requires you to take a, a greater action for many people. And I think that's why, I think partly why it's the, the fact that not so many people go to the theatre, for example, has enabled successive governments and politicians and others to sort of push it down the agenda and say it's not important and it doesn't have the same power or influence. Uh, and why actually in countries where, you know, particularly, for example, television is not so prevalent and perhaps radio and theatre is, it does have that greater resonance and people are more fearful politicians are more fearful, for example, of their playwrights uh, in places like Yemen than they are in the UK, quite frankly, because the playwright has a, a, a much greater uh, sway simply because of the kind of accessibility levels and the kind of relative power that the theatre has, for example, over the, the screen. Let's stay with that for a moment, Jody. Um, at a time when propaganda seems to come from state media outlets and so-called fake news sites, um, how are the arts used today in propaganda? Uh, well, I mean, the arts, 
um, have always been used in propaganda. Shakespeare was a great propagandist to a certain extent, right? Someone's not so sure. To a degree. To a degree. Potentially why he covered certain subjects and, and, and not others. Um, it depends, obviously, on, on the country. It tends to be in two ways. Obviously, governments will have their own state theatres or, or state film industries, for example, that they might use for propaganda. Uh, but it goes much more... Um, advance in that in places like Russia obviously we've got whole factories churning out news and, and blogs deliberately to glorify the, the greatness of Russia um, very clever use of imagery and images from the likes of Putin Caesar's propaganda um, it's largely achieved in many countries simply by screening out the things that they don't like so for example in Uzbekistan which I know you uh, you played in Hamlet played in Uzbekistan right, um, it's for ex that's done by simply saying anything that that threatens the mo the morals the morality of the country the national standing simply doesn't pass and therefore you control the whole artistic scene if you like simply by delineating what cannot and can and cannot be performed and that's why in places like Uzbekistan for example it's incredibly sort of traditionalist um, art forms but it also moves through to something like ISIS, for example, which has whole, um, how would you term it, a media arm generating music to accompany ISIS propaganda videos. And it, and it derives from something called a, a nasheed, which is a, a traditional form of music, but is used largely by ISIS uh, as a way of conveying its messages. And it's very powerful because it, keys into traditional art forms and then turns them in a particular way. So it's being used right from authoritarian regimes to sort of democracies to the likes of ISIS who use music in particular very cleverly to push their message. Well, I think, um, you know, there, there are many ways that journalism is sort of evolving now, I think, a little bit. Um, the idea that, that newspapers and television and radio stations, which were the, you know, the primary forms of, of journalism for much of our lives, um, had to be have to be objective. They have to simply cover uh, the news and do it in a very, um, you know, sort of stand back and, and we'll tell you what's happening, but we're not going to express, we're not going to gussy it up is something that is changing, and I think it's also something that's, that's pretty U.S.-centric a little bit. Um, certainly that's not always been the tradition in Europe. Um, in Latin America, for example, where, where we work a lot, there's a long tradition of uh, narrative journalism and, and, and really kind of a blending a little bit of, uh, of news content. And I, would, I don't know if I would say fiction, but um, certainly uh, Latin American audiences are, are accustomed to seeing journalism have more of an artistic uh, bent to it. One of our, our partners, uh, uh, people working for us in Pakistan, a Pakistani journalist, is now working with one of his newspaper partners to, to look at the problem of crystal meth, which is a big growing problem in Pakistan as it is here, but look at it, he's going to do it through a graphic novel form in the newspaper. Um, so I think it's just kind of interesting how uh, as traditional journalism is sort of fading a little bit, 
um, that we're looking at ways about intersecting art and journalism. And obviously documentary filmmaking is another area that's rich for that kind of uh, uh, coexistence or, or crossover between traditional journalism and art. And you, you only have to look at the popularity of something like The Making of a Murder, right? The, yes. the Netflix documentary, mm -hmm. which I think yes. shows yes. precisely that crossover between, you know, and, and you know, you, you may not see it as journalism, um, but that, that crossover between the kind of traditional investigative journalism and something more like a, a, a film or a documentary that, ke that keeps people in and hooked at a time when it's very difficult to get them to read, you know, past about page three of the newspaper. I thought that was really, I think that's really fascinating. And I think that may well be, given the growth in television and television documentaries and those kind of multi-part pieces where we see journalism move, actually. I think one of the fresh things about theatre, actually, just thinking about this discussion, is that it's, it's very hard successfully to lie in the theatre and to be successful because the audience just go, oh, come on, and they walk away and they back off or they disengage. There's something very fresh and very pertinent and very endlessly alive about it. You know, you have to be true in the theatre. Uh, whether you're doing a Shakespeare or whether you're doing a new play or whatever you're doing, it's very easy to lie through Facebook and through social media and through Instagram. And, you know, I think that's what we're all discovering to our terror is quite how easy it is to spread lies fast through those media. It's not easy to do it in the theatre, which is one reason why the theatre still feels when it's good, fresh as a daisy. I also wonder, political theatre, particularly in, say, the UK and the US, do you think that's harder to do for that reason, that people... Well, no, not if it's good. I mean, if it's dull, it's dull. Um, you know, if it's, if, it's, if it's stupid, it's stupid, and people sort of retreat from it and move away. But if it's, you know, sharp and sophisticated and angry, then it appeals. I think we discovered through the course of our tour that you know, that Hamlet felt political and it felt alive and it felt new for a lot of the places we were going. It was different what they took from it and how they understood it was different, but it, it did feel alive. I want to open that up to the audience, but let me just ask you to, to say something a little bit more about how we fight these checkup efforts um, globally to restore theater production. Right. Um, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> sit still, everybody. I'm now going to tell you how we fix this problem. Um, you can all take out a subscription to Index and Facebook Magazine. No. Um, I think the first thing we have to do before anything is we have to encourage discussion. We talked earlier about difficult conversations. I think particularly in the UK and the US, we've backed away from difficult conversations. Dominic's already referenced it. We retreat into our little spheres where it's safe, um, you know, the safe space of theatre that, that Donald Trump would like it to be, you know, the safe space of our social milieu, of our social media. Um, and we retreat from difficult conversations. And you see this particularly on campus in the UK and the US. It's increasingly difficult to have provocative conversations because one or other party will say that they're being microaggressed uh, and, and immediately the difficult conversations that we need to have in order to be able to advance as a society of different peoples get shut down. And I think 
to, to me, the first way that we address the much bigger attempt to shut down free expression is get better about being tolerant of having those discussions amongst mm. ourselves and especially with people with whom we disagree. We're really bad at talking with those people rather than just shouting at one another. Understanding about censorship is that there's a dictator and this uh, is certain kind of regime. The censorship actually believes everyone, and that yeah. refers to. If once we understand that, I think we can continue to fight this, including how we censor ourselves and censor our friends um, in education. Excuse me about censorship. You know what plays you could think about which Shakespearean plays you encounter in high school. Is that censorship because those plays are deemed appropriate, age appropriate, and whatever um, in college. <coughs> There's huge discussion about trigger warnings, mm. whether it should be there or not. Um, students from different communities, they have their right um, to say that they're uncomfortable about certain topics of discussion, but at the same time, I think this is, uh, this is a golden window in someone's life where they learn about um, uh, precisely the kind of differences and disagreements that we've all talked about, how to deal with it, how to deal with it functionally, None of this is easy. So in other words, I would think we don't have to consciously, um, specifically go to a march or go to the one specific theater in order to fight back. If we continue to um, be aware of propaganda and censorship in all forms and continue to, be, to engage with arts, I think that's already um, collectively as a, communi as a community very useful and very legitimate. I, I agree very much with uh, said previously I think two things one is we have to learn how to speak to everyone as artists or as people involved in helping to make art and stop these false distinctions of high and low and this audience to address or that audience to address you know you speak honestly from yourself and you address everybody or it's not um, really worth doing um, the other thing is I think we have to hold ourselves and our own communities to much 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 higher account and set much, much higher standards for ourselves and our own communities than we have previously. I think that the amount of soft censorship in the UK around how liberals are meant to behave, what they're meant to do, how they're meant to be, to be one of us, to be part of a collective, is a form of conscription that's um, it's terrifying and it's appalling. And you can't quite see the mechanisms of it because it's not... Uh, out there saying do this or don't do that, but it is everywhere, and I think we have to be very rigorous about kicking that off, and um, uh, very, very uh, rigorous in questioning ourselves and the people immediately around us. Yeah, I think uh, certainly agree as 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 Dominic said with every everything that everybody said. I think I think it's also a question of. Um, as in the journalism world, obviously we there was a lot of self-examination after the election. How did we miss this? Um, you know, uh, we 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 in the more traditional media or or even online media along the lines of HuffPost and Vox and places like that, um, we're not in these communities. We we need to get into these communities. We need to listen. We need to hear what people are telling us. We need to stop a little bit of our. Um, snootiness about it, uh, you know, putting down communities, um, even if we feel, you know, oh, these are a bunch of yahoos or something that, you know, that's just not helpful and it's not 
getting us anywhere. Um, the other thing I think we have to do is is look globally at at what is why why autocrats uh, who want to stifle freedom of expression are so popular. Um, you know, I mean, Trump's popularity is is obviously historically low for any president um, in, in in recent U.S. history at this stage, but. Putin is incredibly popular in Russia. Uh, Duterte is incredibly popular in the Philippines. Um, you know, on and on. Not true in Venezuela right. anymore. Well, you, you can speak to that. <laughs> um, so uh, so I, I think we, we really need to, 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 you know, not just assume that everybody thinks like we do, that, that any um, attempt to stifle free, free, free expression is horrible when we have to recognize that people do see a benefit in what these leaders are, are bringing and and you know can we can we address that can we find a way to uh, moderate it uh, so that there is free expression but people's concerns about security or whatever it is that's propelling the popularity of these autocrats um, can be addressed excellent let me open it up questions from the audience you can take your seats please right in right in front Stand up so we can hear you. James that it's going to be restricted Shakespeare or reappropriated it for their own use. I think it, I think attempts have been made, um, but largely unsuccessful because it's such a lively, sprightly, slippery, hard thing to hold that if you go, this is the shape you're going to go in, and you, you've got to put the immense amount of endless effort to stop the humanity and the mischief and the wickedness of it from jumping out. So it's, it, you know, the, the, the attempts have been made to read Coriolanus and this way for uh, communist regimes, this way by fascist regimes, whatever. But the, um, the life in it is, is very resistant to that. You might contradict me. You might know more about this than me. There are a lot of attempts to do that. In fact, on both sides, if you go to dictator, um, dictatorship sponsored reappropriation, kind of appropriate Shakespeare. Uh, but let's not forget, I think, again, we, we, when, we, when we think of censorship, we tend to think of a dictator at the center. But remember, the Victorian Shakespeare is completely sanitized for the family living room and for girls. That is actually censorship, reappropriated, and you know, cut out all the Shakespeare is dirty and actually very inappropriate, the entire canon. And so how, how you teach that, that's really an art. Um, it depends on your audience. Um, um, that, that's one example. The other is Evgenia um, Lipkovsky, the Soviet director. She worked on this Much Ado About Nothing, really popular um, and, and, and successful around the 1950s, about 12-year gap from the very first production to a revival that's a carbon copy. Um, about 12 years later, after the Cultural Revolution. Um, and the actors will have all aged, but they, they, they even copied an exact gesture and everything. Um, and the selling point of that is it, it is apolitical, it is a state-endorsed and sponsored, but it's apolitical. But of course, 
It is political in the very kind of, they're trying to make a claim about the art, a statement about the art. You can see we're still alive, we still have art, right? So you can make all sorts of statements. That's just one example that came to mind that sounds really prominent because they made a carbon copy revival, which is really rare in the theater world. They're, they're revivals, but not carbon copy without the costume and everything. Okay, just talking to the microphone. Hi, um, I'm still trying to face them now. Um, thank you all for being here. It's been really fascinating. Um, so I was interested in a lot of the, what was said, but particularly um, in Mr. Butler's addressing of um, traditional sources. Of, I think of traditional journalism really in spaces of like of the factual right. necessity as opposed to um, the editorialism that we are calling journalism today. Um, but I'm very interested in this idea that we are in this space where art and journalism are kind of, are, are melding uh, whether or not we really intend for them to. Um, and then in that situation, um, theater tells history and journalism tells history, but I, they have separate necessities in the way that they you know, portray history. Um, because the way the newspaper portrays history um, 30 years from now matters 30 years from now. And the way that theater did it, I think has more leniency and I would be interested in hearing Good question. Um, so I think, uh, first of all, the idea of objective journalism, as I was kind of hinting at before, is is not that long of a tradition in the United States, um, and and has never really been that much of a tradition in Europe, where you have media that that take a point of view and are proud of that. You know, Le Monde in in Paris is certainly on the left and and expresses that not only in its editorial pages, um, but also in its in its general news coverage, I think. Um, so uh, in the United States, we've had this ideal of objective journalism, but, um, you know, and we could argue all day over whether that is ever even possible, but it hasn't really been here that long, and I think it's in some ways going away, whether we like it or not. Um, you know, as, as somebody who worked in newspapers, I, I certainly... I think it's something, an ideal that I would still strive for is to, to not have my opinion be what saves the, the, uh, the coverage. But um, because people are getting their news from much more biased sources nowadays, uh, whether through social media or through cable television, um, that the expectations of, of what we expect from news is changing. And I think that that gives us an opening for bringing more arts into uh, journalism, as I was kind of referring to earlier because young people are not interested in uh, just the traditional form of journalism that their parents uh, got, I think that gives opportunity for really kind of reinventing what journalism is. Um, and I think we have to be clear when we have biases so that the audience understands where we're coming from, but ideas like, like doing an important story as a graphic novel that follows a character, I love that, um, or, or you know, television news, Having more angles of, of documentarianism, like like uh, you know reconstructing and, and dramatizing events, I think that's exciting and, and something that we should we should encourage. I know we've got some closing remarks. Maybe we take one more question. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> we're not censoring you on this. <laughs> this is mainly for Jody, but of course any of the other panelists should feel free to jump in. Um, in your closing remarks, Jody, you spoke about the importance of getting out of our echo chambers and having difficult conversations, and you specifically mentioned 
college campuses. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether there's an, uh, a need to sort of look for a way to balance the importance of having difficult conversations with the dangers of giving platforms to certain people. I'm thinking specifically of someone like Milo Yiannopoulos several months ago, someone like Ann Coulter more recently. Um, the New York Times recently hired Brett Stevens, I think is his name, someone who published an op-ed expressing skepticism about climate change. So do you feel that we need to sort of balance the value of having difficult conversations with the dangers of giving platforms to people with potentially dangerous views? Give me one minute. Um, <laughs> in a word, no. I think we need to give platforms to all ideas. Ideas are dangerous. Um, and there is a difference between giving someone a platform and then being able to have a robust debate about it and, yeah. and censoring and not giving anybody a platform. Because once you start to pick and choose, then you end up in a situation where nobody gets to speak or indeed where one individual or one group of individuals decides what's best for all of us and what ideas are best for all of us to hear. And to me, that's the most dangerous outcome of all, to be honest. One thing to add from the journalism perspective, um, you mentioned the New York Times hiring, uh, Brett, what is his name, Brett Stevens, I can't pronounce his last name, but uh, the climate change denier. Um, after Trump's election, uh, you know, newspapers like the Washington Post and New York Times always had op-ed sections where, where people who are, have different points of view from the editorial writers, from the newspaper itself, could express opinions. And, and most of them had some conservative voices there, people like George Will in the Washington Post, but they all hated Trump. Um, almost all of those conservative voices were very, very opposed to Trump. So media after the election, um, in saying that they wanted to, they didn't want to be in the echo chamber, they wanted to appeal to a more broad variety of people, started looking for people like that. And, and uh, you know, who can we find that is sane and, um, you know, uh, rational who, who can present a point of view that's actually pro-Trump? And, and they struggled quite a bit with that. Shakespeare, just for a second. I mean, I think that, you know, we live in a time of appalling oppositions and uh, great tensions and great conflicts, but mild by comparison with what was happening in his day in that you had a Europe that was tearing itself apart over how to express or understand the dominant Christian faith. You had great tectonic plates shifting in terms of class movement and who was in control and how they were in control and in what way they were in control. Um, and you had an England that was feeling, and you had tensions between what a nation was and internationalism and how you explored the world and how you understood the outside world. All of those tensions were screaming at the time uh, that Shakespeare was writing. And he wasn't a journalist and he never wrote anything where he wrote Merry Wives of Windsor, which was a sitcom about its own day. <laughs> but everything else was placed here, there, or wherever, in Greece, in Rome, in English history. But it was all, moment to moment, breath on breath, a reflection of the present day and a reflection of his own world around him. And I think, you know, one of the healthy things about him that remains a healthy thing, uh, as you were saying, that is still healing, is that he was able to bring those huge and horrible oppositions uh, into a place where they could all have that lively conversation and they could scream at each other and shout at each other and it could be contained within a dramatic narrative. And that remains, for me, useful and important today. Um, 
<laughs> I want you to help me thank our panel. <laughs> Patrick, Dominic, Alexa, Jody. And I'm going to ask Jody Ginsburg to close. So I'm going to close um, by thanking the British Council for having co-sponsored this event with us. Um, Index on Censorship is a British organization, but we work globally. We've now been going for 45 years. We sort of hoped that when 1989 came around, that, you know, job done, end of censorship. Uh, 2017, we're still here. Um, we believe passionately that free expression is the bedrock of all other freedoms, and we celebrate free expression by publishing the work of censored writers and artists and you all have a copy of our magazine to take home with you this evening. The focus of this one is about Shakespeare and uh, looking at the way in which Shakespeare has been used across uh, countries and across centuries to challenge power and to think about also the power of theatre. Um, and we try and encourage debate and I genuinely believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant for the most dangerous of ideas and that it's much better to debate those out in the open. Um, so we encourage debate here in the US, in the UK, and internationally, and we campaign against censorship. Um, and I do hope that you'll take this opportunity after this evening to check us out. Um, but also, uh, when you leave here, I know Dominic and Von, you've got both on sale, and I do hope that you will show your support by free for free expression also by buying those too. Thank you. Thank so much. And as she said, please, Dominic and uh, Vani's work you can buy in the lobby. Thanks for being a great audience. Thanks for being here this evening.